the web at wagp.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line, and for the next hour, if you're very New to this program, we'll be taking people's questions, and you can call us again directly at 843-525-1859, or you can email us here directly into the studio. Our email address is TBL, that stands for the Bible line, TBL at net. As always, it's a pleasure to be here, and when you call, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply... Uh, dictate your question. Many people prefer to do that. They don't want their voice known, want to remain more anonymous, or sometimes they're a little nervous of going on the radio and thousands of people listening to them. But um, we don't bite, and so feel free to call. And let's go ahead and get started, Rick. All right, we've got a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Rick. Good morning, Pastor. Good morning. I just wanted to say that... uh, as a member of the safety team, I was a witness last week to thousands of men coming to our church to hear Tim Tebow and perhaps hear the gospel in a way they've never heard before. And I was so encouraged by, by just, just the sheer numbers of men that came there. And I was thinking to myself how blessed we are at Community Bible that we're, God has provided a venue where we can present the gospel so clearly to so many uh, even though I didn't get to hear Tim speak because of where I was stationed, I, di- I didn't need to. I mean, I would, I would just, I really couldn't convey my, my emotions because I was just so encouraged by what was going on there. And I just, I just wanted to say thank you, Pastor, for, for allowing this to happen. Well, it's our pleasure. We're thrilled that Tim Tebow was able to come. And obviously our heart with anything that we do are, is to win people to Christ, even in bringing Ted Cruz. He came not simply to give a political stump speech, but to share his moral biblical convictions. And I knew, and I took a lot of heat on that. Uh, some people will come out of the woodwork and they'll write me letters. And look, if I feel like I'm in the center of God's will, I'm going to do it. Because if I don't, then I'm disobeying the Lord. And so I'm going to follow the Lord's leading. I'm not going to do anything that would violate the word of God. Uh, Whenever God's will is done, it never contradicts his word. But my heart in all of these things ultimately is to win people to Jesus Christ. And we have people who come in the door for one event. We'll have a pig picking oyster roast this Friday night. And it's going to be a great time of fellowship, and it's an, another avenue for our members to reach out to people in the community who might not walk in the front door of the church on a Sunday morning, but they would come to an event like this. The problem that I see with the church in America is they have stopped sharing the gospel. 
uh, people have stopped winning people to Jesus Christ. And it's sad. Uh, And so as a local church, I don't care if you have 20 people coming or 2,000 people coming, you need to strategize and plan and think through how can you reach your community for Christ. The Great Commission is not given to missionaries alone. It's not given to pastors alone. It is given to every blood-bought, born-again Christian to go into all the world and make disciples. And we need to think, if I were the only person left on the planet who was born again, what can I do to reach those people for Christ? And so that's what we're trying to do as a church. And if you happen to be listening to me, you don't have a church home, we not only want to win people to Christ, we want them to be discipled and to grow. And we have a whole avenue for that as well. Anyway, I appreciate that comment. Let's go to the next. 843-525-1859 if you have a question for today's Bible line. And Jose from Bluffton writes, what is your vision of the Spanish ministry? Um, Actually, we will uh, get to that question in just a second, but we've got a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. You're on the Bible line. I thank you. My question is about hyper-Calvinism. Yes. And I was curious of some of your viewpoints in the era and how... Um, because me, I'm thinking the hyper-Calvinists, they take so much away from the um, Word, from Scripture, that it's hard to see, in my eyes, if they're Christian or not. Because I, I, I think of John 3, when um, Jesus speaking to Nicodemus, and he tells him, he says, are you the teacher of Israel? Can I understand these things? And who, who Christ died for, right? The atonement, who Christ died for, to me, seems like such a basic principle that if they got that wrong, it messes up their whole theology on, on, on the works of Christ. I was just curious on your thoughts on that. Yeah, good, good, good thought. You know, I know the term maybe to some of our, our listeners, hyper-Calvinism is new, so let me just qualify and give a little, a little bit of definition. We could spend the next week on this. But, of course, Calvinism is a big word, Most people, when they think of Calvinism, related in their mind only to the doctrine of salvation. But actually, John Calvin had a whole system of theology that entered into every realm, whether it was his doctrine of the church, what we call ecclesiology, or whether it was his doctrine of how the world will unfold in the future, eschatology, or his doctrine of Christology, Christ his doctrine of soteriology, salvation, it influenced every realm. But most people, when they think of John Calvin, they think, well, election, that he taught that God chose some people to go to heaven and God chose other people to go to hell. But it's much larger than that. Of course, central to what drove John Calvin and his theology was his ecclesiology. It's his understanding of the church that influences every other realm of theology. He comes, of course, as a Roman Catholic priest out of Catholicism. He's a young scholar in his day. He is not a lightweight in terms of his, uh, his knowledge of uh, critical um, intellectual, spiritual things. He's conversant in a number of languages. Uh, so he's a bright young guy. But nonetheless, um, so he he understands Roman Catholic theology and Romanism of the day basically teaches, and they teach it to this day, that God is done with the people of Israel. 
that God has no future for the people of Israel, that the church is the new Israel. And by the way, that has pretty much come over today into Reformed theology. Uh, when you think of Reformed theology, again, it's one of those words that have been robbed uh, from other Christians, like the word charismatic. We think of a charismatic Christian as someone who speaks in tongues. Well, actually, every Christian is a charismatic Christian because when God saved you, he gave you a charisma. He gave you a spiritual gift. And there are 20 gifts that are listed in the New Testament. Now, we can debate on the nature and the number of gifts that are given today, but every Christian is a charismatic Christian. And so the term reformed, many people think of it just in terms of uh, Calvinistic type doctrines on the sovereignty of God. But there are a number of Protestant reformers who didn't ascribe to what John Calvin did and even his view of salvation. And yet they were Protestant reformers. So the word has been robbed. But today, most in Reformed theology believe that the church has replaced Israel and there's no significance. So one popular Reformed thinker said that, look, uh, Uganda is no more uh, or less important than Israel. He saw he sees no future with the people of Israel. I think he's dead wrong. He misunderstands the Abrahamic covenant. And this is important. It's important to our nation right now. To me, it's very important that someone has some actual biblically rooted convictions concerning Israel. Why, why do I think that's so critically important at this point in our nation's history? Because of where... Uh, the United States has been going, not just under the uh, Obama administration, but even some decisions that George W. and Condi Rice were making concerning Israel and uh, a, a dual state. I think it's very dangerous. I think it will ultimately result in the demise. But look, our current president has led the charge in leading the United States away from Israel. Now, you have conservative talk show host, a Jewish guy, Mark Levin, who thinks he's anti-Semitic. I would not go that far by any stretch. But there's no question that he has led in policies that are against Israel. And he has uh, presented that, that kind of thinking to the United Nations in his famous speech of about two years ago now. And there's a huge number of people in the United Nations that wants to go against Israel. Now, we know in the end that's going to happen. Now, people take some of the prophetic events of the Olivet Discourse and they relegate that to the first century. And they say that it was all fulfilled then. And that the only event that's still in the future is the, the second coming. That, that's nonsense. It's a, an abuse of uh, how to interpret the scripture. In either case, my point is, is the next president that inherits that office is going into a Congress, many of whom have a mindset not to stand behind Israel. And I really believe the only reason God has not totally let us go as a country yet is because of our stance behind Israel. So my point is with Calvin is he had a view of Israel that was a false view. He took the spin on Roman Catholicism and just redefined it. Instead of saying, as Roman Catholics say, well, the Roman Catholic Church is the true church, that we are the people of God. We've replaced national Israel. John Calvin just said, no, it's not just some institutional organization. It's those who are made up of born-again Christians. So when he came to Romans 9, 10, and 11, he didn't see it as God choosing a nation out of the nations of the world in which to bring Messiah and carry out his purposes, he, got, he saw God choosing individuals 
in order to save some and damn others. And of course, some of his followers carried that further. And so we speak of hyper uh, Calvinism. They were more hyper in their view of election than even John Calvin himself was. John Calvin was a four-point Calvinist, if I can use that term. Uh, The acrostic tulip, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints summarize the five points of Calvinism. And one of those points, which I think is in grave error, they're not all in grave error, but some of the points are, but one of the points that is in grave error is limited atonement, that Jesus didn't die for all, but he died only for the elect. And so a reform theologian today or a reform pastor does not believe you can look at anyone in the eye and say, Christ loves you. He died for you. The only people you can look in the eye and say that of is someone whom you are convinced is a born again Christian because they don't believe Jesus died for all that. He died only for a select few. I believe that is a gross error and and it does not come from the plain reading of scripture. You know, I was in India earlier this year and some folks there were absolutely astounded as they've heard. And there's more American influence in the church in India that anyone could embrace that. Where on earth do they get that? They asked, look, some people are educated beyond their own intelligence and I don't know how else to say it. I'm not trying to be ugly or mean, but it's not coming from the simple reading of scripture. So the question from Savannah here is, well, you know, does this mean these people are lost? No, by no means, by no means. There are born again, Bible believing Christians who love the cause of Christ, who embrace this. You say, but how could they embrace it? Well, like I say, I I, I think they're educated into it. I think sometimes it is driven by a sense of pride. I really believe that, that there are some who want to hold some exclusive doctrine and it gives them a sense of significance that they embrace that doctrine. Not all. There are some very humble people in the Reformed faith that really, truly, sincerely love the living God. Um, Do I think they're wrong? Yeah, I do. So, you know, there are some things that obviously you can't hold to two positions at the same time. Uh, Let's bring it down to baptism. Post-conversion baptism and infant baptism both can't be right. Somebody's right, somebody's wrong. So you have to choose sides. You, you, You both can't be right that Jesus died for all or Jesus died only for a select few. Both can't be right. You have to choose sides. And I think that's an error. I think it, it, it is, you can call it a heresy. Are they heretics? No, there's a difference between someone holding to a heresy, something that's just wrong doctrinally. It comes great, directly from a Greek word that implies that, and a heretic. A heretic is someone who is a, a false teacher that teaches damnable doctrines. You could still hold to the doctrine of a particular limited atonement that Jesus died just for a particular group of people, namely the elect, those who would believe, and still go to heaven. There's a difference between that and, say, denying the deity of Christ or the virgin birth or the substitutionary atonement or the infallibility of Scripture or the doctrine of the Trinity, all of which, by the way, Mormons deny every facet. Uh, they use, uh, I had a brother who came up to me after church on Sunday in the parking lot. And he said, I spoke yesterday to Mormons at my door for two hours. And, you know, I, I'm just kind of confused. They, they said they believed everything that I believe. I said, they're liars. They are liars. They're lying to you. 
they use the same terminology, but they redefine terms. So I said to him, you know, you think they believe in the virgin birth? Yes. I said, did you, do you ask them how the virgin birth takes place? Well, you know, I ask that of sometimes of brothers who say, you know, they're, they're talking to some Mormon and they, they sound like we sound. And I said, look, they say God, the father took on a human body, came down, had a relationship with Mary. And that's how Jesus got here. That's not what the scripture says. Hey, look, the, the book of Mormon is, by the way, I, I, if I remember, it's 17 books within one, you know, just like we have 66 books within our Bible. Um, they have 17 books within the book of Mormon. One of the books is the book of Alma, Alma chapter seven. You will read that Jesus was born in Jerusalem. That's what the book of Mormon says. The Bible says he was born in Bethlehem. Now you got to pick and choose. They both can't be right. So when push comes to shove, they're going to deny Orthodox Christianity in every realm. It's salvation by not grace alone through faith alone. It's salvation by faith plus works. Uh, The virgin birth is different. Um, The Bible's corrupted. When push comes to shove, they say the Bible's been corrupted. The only book you can really trust is the Book of Mormon. The doctrine of the Trinity, it's wrong. Um, So every major biblical teaching, uh, those are heretics. They're presenting a different message. So look, you can be a non-Calvinist and be orthodox in your doctrine and still be lost. So it's not an issue of Calvinism versus non-Calvinism. Barnhouse said it so well in the 1950s. He said there will be enough fundamentalists in hell to start a fundamentalist convention. What was he saying? That orthodoxy all by itself does not mean that you're born again. You know, every time you hear a demon speak in scripture, they speak with orthodoxy. Have you ever thought about that? He is the Holy One of Israel. He is the Son of God. They speak with orthodoxy. So Satan is a great deceiver. So this is not a test of whether or not they're believers or not. Certainly, as someone who's not regenerated can easily be swayed into error, but believers can too. And so um, we have to be discerning. We have to think for ourselves. We need to search the scriptures like the Bereans who were on their way to Christ to see if the things that Paul said about Jesus concerning him being the Messiah, whether these things were true. In other words, he's saying they're noble minded. Why? Because they were open hearted and their authority came not from simply Paul, but it came from the word of God. So they searched the scriptures to see if what Paul was saying was true. Remember, Paul had, Paul was, uh, um, uh, hadn't written Romans yet or many of these other books. And uh, he's defending from the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. Anyway, great question. Let's go to the next one. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line and uh, going back to that question from Jose in Bluffton, he'd like to know what your vision is of a Spanish ministry. He writes, many Christians forget that many immigrants are humans, not just illegals being hunted in their own countries. Uh, And then I'm a little confused what he's saying here, where Senator would like to hear your opinion on this giving that we know that Ted Cruz feels toward Hispanic community. Well, uh, I think if you know Ted Cruz, he has a love for immigrants. His, His father alone of course, came from Cuba. Uh, His father was an unbeliever, uh, came to this country. And when Ted was a little boy, as he shared his testimony that day at Community Bible Church, his dad left them. 
and he goes to Texas, and there in Texas uh, ends up going to a Bible study where he's saved. He goes back, and he restores his family and, and moves them to uh, the Houston area where, you know, his wife ends up receiving Christ as well. So um, he, he doesn't have, like, a problem with immigrants. Um, you know, he speaks Spanish himself. He's fluent in the language. Um, he, he loves the Hispanic people. The issues that he is addressing that needs to be addressed is that this country has never been against immigrants. And by the way, we've never been a nation of immigrants. We've been a nation of American citizens. And there's a big difference. In other words, when people came through Ellis Island and my grandparents came from Ireland, they came through Ellis Island and when they came through Ellis Island there in the 1920s, they came with an understanding that if they were going to be American citizens, that they were going to support the Constitution of the United States. That's what it means to be an American. And what we're doing is, because we have unprotected borders, is we are opening the doors in a way that people can come into this nation and not necessarily ascribe to the principles of this nation. And if that happens long enough, we will cease to be a nation. Look, the idea of a border is not something that some Republican or Democrat or someone came up with. It actually originates in the Word of God in the Bible. Go back to the Tower of Babel. God established when he confused the nations of the world because of their idolatry, borders. And this truth, of course, is affirmed elsewhere in the Bible. For instance, in the book of um, Acts, chapter 17, Paul is in Athens. He's up there on the top of Mars Hill, and he keys off of... uh, Uh, an altar with an inscription to an unknown God. Uh, It's a magnificent place. I've stood here on the very spot where Paul preached on top of Mars Hill. It's not a huge area. It's about about an acre and a half, maybe two acres at the most in terms of sitting, standing space. It's like climbing up a hill. And when you stand on the top, it's one big boulder. I don't know how else. It's all solid rock. And you look down the hill and you see the business center of first century Greece. You look to the right and the Parthenon is there with all of the worship of all of the false gods. And you look to the left and you see the government center from the first century. So Paul's like right in the middle of religion, the economic business center and the government center. And he's preaching this incredible sermon And he keys off of one of these statues to an unknown God. And he says, what therefore you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all life and breath and all things. And he, God, made from one, uh, You could render it one blood because in the end, we're all from one blood. We may look different and the thousands of people who are listening at this moment are of a number of races and nations, but whether you know it or not, we're related because we all go back to Adam. Ultimately, we all go back to Adam 
in Adam was the whole human race. And that's, by the way, is why we're inculcated with Adam's sin. It's inbred in us. Uh, when Adam sinned, Paul says in Romans 5, verse 12, all sinned. Uh, we made the decision in and with Adam to rebel against God. And so he says, uh, the God who made the world and all in it, since he is the Lord of heaven, does not dwell in temples made with hands, neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all life and breath and all things. And he made from one, from one blood every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and boundaries of their habitation that they should seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Here's what I don't want you to miss. God very clearly is the one who established boundaries. God did. Man didn't come up with that. God came up with that. That was God's idea. That was, that was the living God's idea to establish boundaries. A nation without boundaries is not a nation at all. You know, you used to hear Ronald Reagan say that all the time. Where did he get that idea? Right here, Acts 17, and we could go to a number of other passages. This is something that God's word teaches plainly. And so if you don't have a nation where their borders are controlled, you have chaos. And so, you know, what is happening in America? We've got these people who are coming into our nation who are unwilling necessarily to ascribe to our values. And honestly, do the Democrats care? Most of them, I would say no. Why? They want all these illegal immigrants to become citizens without really securing the border and having them come legally through the front door because they want to control the political realm. Look, the average Democrat today, I would vote for a Democrat tomorrow if they stood right, all other things being equal on the social issues. But listen, nine out of 10 Democrats in America are in favor of killing little babies. And I would say to any Christian listening to me today, how you can vote because you're voting for your pocketbook and what they're going to do for you Vote for someone for your own selfish benefits for a baby killer is beyond me. Nine out of 10 Democrats are in favor of homosexual marriage. God calls that an abomination. That's just an evil. That is an evil that has come upon our landscape. And we are raising our puny little fists, you know, in the face of God Almighty. We're mocking him. We're laughing him. You know, and when Hillary Clinton last week, you know, and you hear it almost every day in her stump speeches, talks about women's rights, i.e. their legal ability to murder little babies. Hey, listen, let's face it. You know, her husband had three opportunities to veto partial birth abortion. It was right there on his desk. And he knew that they could not override the veto. And so he allowed it to stay law. Do you understand what he was doing? He was saying it's okay to partially birth a baby. You know, you turn the baby around where you deliver the feet first instead of the head. 
and you bring the feet out and the arms out and you leave everything in but the head and then you insert uh, you know, an instrument into the baby's brains and you suck the baby's brains out and then you crush his skull and you put a dead baby on an operating table. The President of the United States of America affirmed that. So didn't our number one leading Republican running for office affirm that, Donald Trump. Now, look, I know anyone can change. And if there's anyone who recognizes that people can change, it's me. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a proof of it because I've had the new birth and I've had hundreds, now thousands of people through Community Bible Church who have found Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and they're new creatures. When I hear a Donald Trump, what I'm looking for is a brokenness. Look, if I lived in Nazi Germany during the Second World War, and though I never actually worked in one of the camps, and I never actually turned the valve on to gas, you know, the Jewish people, of which six million people died in those chambers. If I had never done that, but I supported my government. And then I came to genuine faith in the living God. What do you think my heart would have said about my past? Man, I would have wept. My heart would have been broken. How could I ever have supported a country, a nation that was killing innocent men, women, boys, and girls? Have I ever heard that from Donald Trump's mouth? No, what I've heard most recently is, you know, well, you know, Planned Parenthood does some good things. I'm in favor of the good things they do. Look, they are an evil, wicked, heinous organization that was birthed by the devil himself in hell. And if you think they are a good organization, you need to take a hard look at yourself, whether you've been born again, because you're displaying that of a natural mind. Look, when the guy says, I don't need to ask for forgiveness, I just do good things to make up for the wrong things I've done. That's a direct denial of the word of God. And we don't need someone in office. But the sad thing is, is that 35% of so-called evangelicals nationwide are supporting him. And they allowed him to win South Carolina last week. That, that to me was very, very sad. I, w- I was grieved more than anything else that God's people. And again, I think some of these people are not God's people. I know the, the classification of evangelical now is very, very loose. And, uh, but, but serious Christians, any Christian with any level of spiritual maturity behind them who even know just a, a small percentage of the Bible, how on earth anyone like that could ever, you know, vote for Donald Trump. I just, it's inconceivable to me. I just don't consider them serious Christians or at best they're just babes in Christ, you know, for a baby murderer, for someone not to come out and say, you know, I, I'm so sad because of this position I've had of influence. One of the most successful businessmen in the history of our nation who have become a multi-billionaire. I'm just, you know, so sad that I would have ever ascribed to partial birth abortion, much less any other kind of abortion. But let's face it. We're talking about partial birth abortion. If a woman one day before her baby's due wants to, wanted to go into a hospital and have her little baby delivered, that's how it was done. I mean, if that's not infanticide, if that's not murder, I don't know what it is. And by the way, do you know why they came up with the process of partial birth abortion? Because of the failure of saline abortions, where they used to inject saline into a woman's womb. The baby would be burned to death. 
and then they would deliver a dead baby. The problem is, is they had hundreds of babies every year that were born alive and they didn't know what to do with them. And the nurses would freak out. Sometimes the doctors would just put them in a closet. And of course, in that famous case in Boston, the doctor strangled the baby until it was dead. This is America. This is America the beautiful. This is what is happening in our nation. And people get mad at me because I want to have a man who at least has some biblically rooted convictions on these issues. I need to know that the next president who goes, because listen, Christian, you're listening to a radio station that has freedom to broadcast right now our moral political views without making endorsement as a station. That's free speech. People want to say, oh, you're going to lose your nonsense. There's a church in America has never lost its 501c3 status ever for a pastor standing in a pulpit and endorsing a candidate. I'm not ashamed to say that I stood behind and I stand behind Ted Cruz. Why? Because he's born again. Number two, I think he knows the scripture better than others. So the idea of having a secure border, I think is like critically important. Why? Because we're letting all these people into the country who don't share our convictions. Look, Franklin Graham, I think he was absolutely right when he quotes from the U.S. uh, Center for Security Policy, where he says 51% of Muslims living in America believe Muslims in America should have the choice of being governed according to Sharia or Islamic law. 51% instead of the Constitution. 29% of Muslims in America agree that violence against those who insult Muhammad is acceptable. 25% of Muslims living in America agree that violence against America can be justified as part of global jihad. We're not far away. In 2035, we're going to have 50 million Muslims in America. I'm not against the Muslims becoming American. What I am against is that if they come into America, they have to live under American law. They have to agree and subscribe to the Constitution of the United States. And we need to slow down the process. We do need to secure the, the border. And so America has never been against immigrants coming in. Ted Cruz has never been against immigrants. He's, he's, the, he's the product of an immigrant family that came here from Cuba. In fact, God's not against it. He says in Leviticus 19.34 to the Jewish people, he said, you must regard the foreigner who lives with you as the native born among you. You are to love him as yourself for you are foreigners in the land of Egypt. I am Yahweh, the Lord, your God. So he says, you regard the foreigner with compassion. Remember that you too were once foreigners in the land, but you live with them as a native born among you. So that had two implications. One, compassion. You showed them love. You were not prejudiced against them because you were Jewish and they were Gentiles. And number two, they came under Israeli law. And so the same thing applied to the foreigner that applied to the native Jew. And so if you uh, murdered, man, it was, you were, it was over. Um, there was a system that they lived under. That's the Lord God Yahweh speaking under the theocracy of Israel. And so if a foreigner, an immigrant comes, he comes as an American citizen or he shouldn't come at all. And if he's not willing to live under American law, so we've basically said it doesn't matter. 
It really doesn't matter. Anybody can come. Uh, let's not make the process legal. And, of course, the Democrat Party knows that because we are such a generous people, we're bankrupting our own nation because we are such a generous people. Listen, the government congressional budget office, that's a nonpartisan office in 2026, 10 years away now, they basically say we will be bankrupt. That's that's not a Republican group. That's not a Democrat group. That's the Congressional Budget Office. How do they say that? They say 100% of all the money that comes in, all the tax revenue, you know, all things being equal, things don't change. Now, I know people say they want to get into office and generate all these new jobs, and I, because that's what it's going to take to get us out of this debt hole. We're $19 trillion in debt. We have, depending on who you read, between 100 and 200 trillion dollars of unfunded liabilities. You know, when you have money taken out of your check every week or biweekly or however you're paid for Social Security, you don't think it goes into some bank account and just waiting there and collecting interest so they can pay you. Not at all. It just goes into the general slush fund and they're they're using 100% of all of our Social Security funds. Plus, you know, they keep borrowing. There's no money in any lockbox anywhere. And so they say in 2026, 100% of all the tax revenue that comes in will have to be used to pay entitlements and interest on the debt, and there'll be zero money left for military infrastructure and so forth. You don't think you're going to get a Social Security check in 10 years, do you? Some of you are listening to me, and you're counting on your Social Security check. People keep kicking this down the road. When George W. Bush was president of the United States, he went to 60 cities in America and pleaded and made all these speeches that we have to do something. No one listened to him. He said, okay, nobody will listen to me. And here we are all these years later and the debt is doubled and we're in a deep hole. That's stealing. The Bible says you shall not steal. So many people listening to me are counting on those Social Security checks in order to retire, to meet your needs when people say you can no longer work and you're counting on. It's not going to be there. You don't think they're going to dissolve the military in order for you to get your Social Security check, do you? These are the things that we're dealing with. And so many, even of the people of God, are blinded. And God is not, you know, blessing our nation as he once did. We're we're being very, very foolish. And it's going to take someone with some real backbone and some biblical conviction if it is ever going to be turned around. All right. So I'll get off my political soapbox. But I'm just trying to get some people to think. I just don't think many people are thinking. What is really happening here in America today? 525-1859, area code 843, or you can text us or email us here directly at TBL for the Bible line at WAGP.net. Let's go to the next email question that's come in. All righty. Marty from Savannah writes, the president of Dallas Theological Seminary, Dr. Mark Bailey, said in his study on the book of John that not only have men been confronted by God, but they've been confronted with Jesus Christ in the creation, Romans 1, 18 to 20, due to the fact that John says in John 1, 9 that uh, Jesus was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Do you agree? Well, um, again, I've not listened to that message. I respect Mark Bailey. Uh, he is attempting, I'm sure, to rightly divide the word of truth. 
uh, I think what he is probably saying is that since both the creation of the world is credited not just simply to the Father, but also to the Son, and we might add to the Spirit in other passages, and you might expect that since God is one, and we are doing a, a series right now on the Holy Spirit, we come into section one this week, and it will be going for the next 20 to 25 weeks, and every week will stand on its own, but the... Uh, Holy Spirit, in many ways, is the forgotten person of the New Covenant, yet he is involved in so much. But one of the dimensions of the triunity of God is that, in some respect, every member of the Trinity is usually involved in virtually every act, uh, whether it's creation or the giving of spiritual gifts or whatever you might think. So with that said, you know, since God has revealed himself through the creation, Romans 1, 18 to 20, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, Paul says, are clearly seen through the things that the Lord God has made so that men are without excuse. No one can say, is there a God? Does God exist? Because all men have the creation around them shouting the existence of God. And that's why biblically, the one half of one verse is devoted to atheism. There's an assumption in the scripture that God exists and every man knows that. There are no atheists in the world. Uh, no such thing, biblically speaking. That's just the, the wicked pride of a man saying, I am so smart, I'm going to deny what every fiber in my human body tells me that there's a God. I'm so smart and you're just stupid. And so I'm going to hear, stand here today and tell you there's no God. That's a moral decision because people are usually involved in some kind of immorality uh, by which they are rebelling against God. So they just kind of suppress the truth, as Paul says in that chapter. They're suppressing what they know to be true. But since God has spoken, the Father has spoken, theos there in Romans 1 is a reference to the Father. In the beginning created God, Hashemam, the heavens and the earth. <clears throat> and so God created the heavens and the earth, and yet the Bible affirms Jesus created everything, that nothing was made apart from him. So if the Father shouts through the creation, then you can equally say the Son shouts through the creation. I think that's what Mark Bailey, no doubt, was saying. That doesn't mean that men know the gospel through the creation. Certainly not. The gospel still has to be preached. And of course, I have a, a whole handout on this. You know, we have a class on Sunday morning called the Discovery Class. It's a 45-week course for new believers, and it's structured so they can begin any week they want. And one section of the course is Christian apologetics. And one of the questions they address, for which I have a handout on, is what about those who've never heard the plan of salvation? Basically, that question is asking, how can God be just and loving and kind and compassionate in sending some people to hell who have never even believed in a Savior of whom they never heard? And that's an important question, and it shakes every realm of theology. And we address that in that class. But there is a biblical principle that light responded to brings more light. And so the Father and the Son... Every member of the Godhead has shouted through the creation of their existence. That doesn't mean that someone's saved. In that sense, all men know God, Romans 1 says, in terms of that he exists. But then there's the word for no God in terms of 
uh, intimacy. This is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. That speaks of an intimate relationship. That's the nature of eternal life. And for that to happen, you have to have eternal life. How do you get eternal life? He that believes in the Son has life. He who does not believe the wrath of God abides on him. So there's still that need for genuine response to, to faith in Christ. But so here's the point. You cannot dichotomize. You cannot separate out the members of the Trinity and the creation of the world any more than you can separate them, say, in the giving of spiritual gifts. Who gives spiritual gifts biblically? Well, the Father is credited with giving spiritual gifts in Romans 12. The Son is credited with giving spiritual gifts in Ephesians 4. The Spirit is credited with giving of spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12. Every member does though there's certainly accent on the Holy Spirit's ministry in this realm. Good question. Let's go to the next one. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on the Bible line. And our next caller says she would like to know how to answer conservative Christians who say the reason they are voting for Donald Trump is they feel he can beat the Democratic candidate. What response should she give? Well, I'm not sure that he can. Um, Maybe he can, but to be honest with you, I don't think the man has much substance whenever I hear him speak. I mean, forget, suppose he was just dedicated pro-life, never was, you know, in favor of abortion or partial birth abortion, never in favor of gay marriage, never in favor of homosexuals in the military. Suppose he, you know, had a sterling record, was a committed born-again Christian. I haven't heard much substance. We're going to build a wall. It's a big wall. And we'll have a big door on it. And the Mexican government's going to pay for it. And last week, we're not paying for it. I'm, what are you going to, what's your response? I'm going to build it 10 feet higher, you know. Wonderful. Okay, we're going to build a wall. We're, we're, you know, how are you going to do it? And um, what are the principles that, I, I just don't hear any substance. And so I think what I fear is going to happen is if he wins the nomination, Hillary is going to make him look like an Ill- idiot. She has a knowledge of foreign policy, and one of the chief functions of the president of the United States is not to build roads and educate the people. That's not the chief function of government in the Bible. What's the chief function of government in the Bible? To bear the sword, to put down evil, and to praise good. That's what the Bible teaches. It's not to build roads and to educate our people and Oh, wonderful that we do that. But that's not the chief function of government that God gives in the word of God. And so we live in a day where, you know, the world is interconnected. It's the day the prophets wrote of in the Old Testament. We'll study it when we come to Daniel, the prophetic side of the book of Daniel. This day was actually predicted. Nonetheless, you know, we're living in that day. And if someone doesn't know how to deal with government, well, Putin and I, you know, we'll be friends and you know, we'll get together in a room and, you know, and I'll get them to do what I want them to do. Look, it, it takes some basic, really, knowledge and not just knowledge, but constitutional knowledge. Every time I hear him, you know, ask a question about the Constitution, he just responds in ignorance and generality. So I'm afraid what's going to happen before the American people, he's going to look like a dummy. He's going to look like a real dummy that doesn't really have much depth except general. We're going to make our military so strong, so big, they're going to be afraid to touch us. Okay, great. You know, but you've got to get beyond broad generalities to specifics, and especially in light of foreign policy and other issues. 
So um, I'm afraid that he doesn't have that ability. You know, I I see an ability in Ted Cruz. I I think Marco Rubio would have the ability, you know, to debate Hillary. But I don't see that with Donald Trump. Um, Anyway, um, let's go to the next question. All right. Uh, Haley writes, I can't seem to plainly read 1 Corinthians 11 without feeling like I should be wearing a head covering. It seems clear to me that it's not talking about hair. I believe I've heard you say that uh, rings are the modern-day comparison to the head covering talked about in 1 Corinthians 11. But how does that fit the criteria in that men also wear rings? So there's no distinction between them and the women. Men and women wear rings regardless uh, if praying, prophesying. It says the symbol should be on or not on the head like hair. I don't wear a head covering. Neither does anyone in my church or friends. I know God looks at the heart, but I can't help but feel like I'm missing out on a blessing. And my husband and church as well by not practicing this symbol like we do other symbols such as baptism and communion. Well, uh, number one, I don't know where you got the idea of a ring, but that didn't come from me. So you heard that from another preacher. Uh, So I I wouldn't use that as a parallel between the two. I might use uh, a woman taking her husband's last name as symbolic that she is under his leadership. They didn't do that in the first century. Uh, You didn't identify, you know, you didn't even identify yourself in terms of a last name. Oh, he's uh, he's Johan, son of uh, Frederick. He's uh, Jacob, son of Isaac. And so um, you identified yourself through the patriarch in your family. In fact, the Slavic people did that for a long, long time. And the change has not all been that. It's not been that different for that long. For instance, Ivan Borisovich. What does that mean? It means Ivan, John. That's the Russian word for John Borisovich, son of Boris. Um, So all of those names uh, were basically uh, names by which you identified by your father. As time has progressed, people have added last names, family names, so to speak. And so when a woman is married, one of the things that she does is she takes her husband's last name. He doesn't take her last name. My name is not Carl McKay now. My wife's name is Audrey Brogy. Why? Because she has come under my headship. Now, granted, there's a lot of people who get married today who don't understand the history behind that, but that's the history behind it. The history behind a a woman taking her husband's last name goes back to a recognition that there was male headship. Uh, Of course, today there are women who refuse to take their husband's last name, and I've never met one who wasn't a hardcore feminist. That's the uh, nature behind that rationale. And then there are some who take it reluctantly. Hillary Rodham Clinton, uh, she's underscoring her, uh, you know, her, her former name. In either case, um, my point is, is that head coverings were indeed symbolic. And so when you say you don't wear a head covering, uh, what do you mean by that? You don't wear a doily? Because that's how some people apply this. When we were kids in the Roman Catholic Church, uh, the women came in and every woman put a doily on their head. Um, and, and let me just say parenthetically that in some cultures, 
the head covering is entirely appropriate today. For instance, when we first started going into Eastern Europe in the 1990s, when communism fell, and I began making trips over there, I could look into any congregation. I could look into a sea of a few thousand people in a church that I might be preaching in, and I could point to every woman who is single and every woman who is married. How could I tell? Because every married woman had a head covering on. Every single woman had no head covering. And the married woman was basically saying by that symbol, I am under my husband's authority. Just like symbolically, we're saying when we take our husband's last name, I am under his authority. That's the genesis of it. Now, true with anything, given enough time, a symbol becomes empty and people don't know the origin of the symbol. And I'm sure there are people in Eastern Europe who didn't understand. And why, why do you wear head covering? Well, because my mother did. Why did she do it? Because her grandmother did and her great-grandmother. And it's just a tradition without necessarily any substance or meaning behind it. Now, as the uh, East, Eastern Europe, all the Slavic countries have become more westernized, some of the Christian women are beginning to drop this symbol. Most still actually ascribe to it. Uh, because it's still a big part of the culture in wanting to be all things to all men, not wanting to be a stumbling block to anyone. Uh, they haven't let it go in most churches. And even, again, in the, in the secular realm, you could be a communist, and most women wore a head covering because it went back to the traditions that they had. So the head covering, you know, is a culturally mandated thing. The principle of being in submission to your husband who's the head is not. That's a timeless principle. It's just like John 13. You know, you mentioned the Lord's table and baptism. Why don't we talk about foot washing? Why don't we foot wash? You know, there's a whole denomination of Baptists that are called foot washing Baptists. And they say there are not two ordinances, but there are three ordinances. The Lord's Supper, baptism, and foot washing. Uh, I think they misinterpret John 13, but when Jesus says in John chapter 13, he says, do you know what I have done to you? Right after he washed their feet, you call me teacher and Lord. Those are titles that are proper that you've used in your right for so I am. If I then the Lord and the teacher washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. And so some have concluded from this that we should do foot washing. No, I, I think his point is, is in the next verse, for I gave you an example that you should also do as I did to you. Not just wash feet, but be servants, especially of those, to those people in the body of Christ who are not Christ-like. Anyway, we're out of time, but as always, it's been a pleasure here to be with you for this last hour. Uh, sometimes uh, during the week, uh, people email uh, questions in from searchthescriptures.org. Click on the icon, ask Dr. Berge a question, or here to Rick at TBL, the Bible line at WAGP.net. And when we come into the studio, the questions are here and we address them. And then you are notified when your question is answered so you can go back and listen to it even if you're not able to be here. Lord bless you as you walk with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. 